gathering to cast magic spells. How old and epic only time will tell. Dark ritual, source of will, and time walking to draw seven with fortune's will. Battle head to head. In brutal combat, Thalia Gotti and a Thraven tapping all upon us. Planeswalkers, all right, their epic story. They're that the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of the Eternal Glory podcast. My name is Anurag Das, and boop, bop, We are here with Brian Cook and special guest Dr. Wilson Hunter. How's it going? Hello. Hey, guys, what's up? It's been a week. I've been in Washington, D.C. this entire week, and I'm here for work, so I flew over like on Monday, and uh, I, I got I to gotta tell you, traveling is exhausting. What do you do for a job, by the way? Up until this point, I, I, I didn't even know you had a job. It's a secret. It's a secret. I thought he was just secret. a Twitch streamer. Oh, that would be the that would be very nice. No, I am a uh, consultant. I consult. The only reason I actually knew that Anurag has a job is that he was complaining one day on stream that his coworker would not leave him alone, and it was not honey. <laughs> and it was not honey. <laughs> no, actually, no, I, I I am a consultant. I'm part of a very small team, and uh, I the work is the, the people are nice. The work is whatever you know. Most work is whatever. So I guess uh, as per usual. We'll get through the uh, the quick hits. I guess we'll call it. That's that, that. sounds like a pretty nice name to just call it for that. You know, like you know how like podcasts have segments. So the first segment of the day is going to be quick hits. If this is awkward for any listeners, it's because Anurag is reading the show notes for the first time as he said that, and that's the. All right. You know what? I'm actually not reading it for the first time, and I'll tell you right now. Special shout out to Pow Twenty Two for an amazing deck list. Uh, Brian told me not to say this, so I don't know why I'm saying it. But we'll, we'll get to that later. That point later on. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Anurag so, has <clears> been <throat> drinking quite a bit. Yo, bing, bing, bang, boom. Uh, quick hits. So uh, off the top, I want to say thank you to Dick Fisher for the three-peat. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, Wilson, what's that sound effect you do? Ring! Hey, Dick, thank you so much for the uh, the the support. It means a lot to us. Uh, you know, it, it, it does help us. It does keep us going. Thanks, Dick. Dick, if you are ever at a Grand Prix or if you're ever at a big event, we're there. Just come say hi to us. Come say hi to us. Come get dinner with us. Is, is that ethically? Is that, like, okay to say that? The word Dick? Why? It's his name. Oh my God. No, not that. To, <laughs> to invite invite our <laughs> to invite our listeners, uh, particularly the ones that donate large amounts of money to us, uh, to to invite them to dinner. Well, we're certainly not inviting Rugved. He hasn't given us a cent. Bryant, uh, any upcoming events? There is a Legacy two to two and a half k on July thirteenth here in Syracuse, New York, at From the Vault Games. Come hang out. And on top of that, I recorded a league and my format playoffs with my newest TES list that I'm calling the Epic Storm 7.5. It's got some spicy numbers in there, like uh, main deck defense grid. So it's pretty sweet. Come check it out on my YouTube channel. Sweet. Do you know how many times I've lost a main deck defense grid from the TES side in the past week? How many? Once. And it was very frustrating. Speaking of that, Anurag, you've really been ramping up your stream content lately. Whenever I get on Twitch... I see you on there providing some awesome Legacy Miracles content. And I'm wondering if you can talk to our listeners a bit about your 
Twitch channel and potentially some goals you have for your stream. Hey, you want me to be very honest, like brutally honest? Please. I spent $200 so I could stream for two days this week while I was abroad. And honestly, I will tell you, this is one of the greatest purchases I've ever made in my life, expenses I've ever made in my life. One of my viewers came on stream and was just like, I really appreciate that you put the extra effort to be online when you didn't have to. So essentially, what are my goals for the stream? It would be nice if at one point in my life I was not working as a consultant and was full-time streaming instead. I think that's my ultimate goal. I do understand that it would take a long time to to get that level of success. But I'm also like not really looking for like, you know, like how they're like big time streamers and like they, they make like hundreds and thousands of dollars. Now I'm, I'm happy with a reasonable livable wage. I enjoy streaming a lot and it would be really cool to do that day in, day out. That's my, that's my primary goal. So I don't know. It's just a fun task. And it just so happens that when you find something fun, when you really enjoy something, you do put in that extra effort to make it all come together. So, well, as a viewer, I certainly appreciate the content. I also like how you interact with the chat in fun and creative ways when I'm viewing. It's great. I also like that you try different cards and different sub-archetypes of miracles. I was actually going to ask a question about that. So I've noticed that in the stream, I've seen the card Dovin's Veto in Honorag's Deckless multiple times, but here on this very podcast, he said that card was unplayable. And it just leaves me with a wrench in my stomach because I don't know how he feels because I've consumed both the podcast content and the stream content. And I just don't know what to think anymore. Yeah, you're going to have to personally call me to get my real verdict on that question. No, the the truth is, as a Magic the Gathering player, genius deck builder, I have to spend a lot of time testing cards out. So like Wilson said, try everything. You know what I mean? You, even if it's a bad idea, I think it's worth it when you have the time to just test out all the, the good ideas, the bad ideas, just to make sure uh, that you didn't like actually like you know forget something or you, you didn't miss the sleeper in the set. And I think as new cards get printed, it's important to try the older cards just to see if there are like new synergies. There's like an interaction that makes a specific combo like really powerful. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying Dovin, Dovin's Veto is, is that card. It, it's, it's good to try things out. Over and over and over again. Science. All right, let's dive into the feedback uh, from the last episode. Uh, So our first comment off the bat is by Reddit user Nargoyles, who also happens to uh, be a stream frequent. What up, Nargoyles? Nargoyles says, definitely the cream of the crop when it comes to legacy podcasts. Wow, thank you. Don't interrupt Nargoyles. (laughs) I have to agree with both Bryant and Wilson. All right, next topic. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, I have to agree with both Bryant and Wilson. I think Arcanist is incredibly overhyped and will not be seen much after the mulligan changes for reasons stated in the podcast. It being a slow clock, will be overtaken by uh, better mid-range decks. Feel that the reason for Delver popularity was the uptick in walkers and non-basics and combo decks. Well, I think it's really interesting. So you said he's a regular viewer of your stream. Is that correct? Yes. A very wise and handsome individual. Hey, I will agree with you on that. So thank you, Nargoyles, for your comment. Really appreciate it. All right. Next comment by Scott 85 This is another Reddit user. First off, Brian, I agree 100% on Winter Orb being a good sideboard card right now in Delver. With the uptick in Basic Lands, Blood Moon, and Back to Basics are both slightly less effective. However, Winter Orb doesn't care what type of lands you use. Furthermore, I also agree about Dreadhorde not being the ideal card for Blue-Red, although I didn't particularly like Terramander either for the same reason. 
another intelligent listener. Hey, we appreciate you, Scott 85 Thank you for listening. I do want to clarify that, and I think you may already know this too, but Bryant and I are not suggesting in our thesis, well, I don't want to speak for Bryant, maybe he is, that Terramander is is good or is great or is even what you should be playing instead of Arcanist. I think that our Arcanist comment was sort of in a standalone box here without considering, hey, this is the alternative that we say you should play over it. But but yeah, thanks for the comment. Appreciate it. And top 10 eternalglorypodcast.com listener Max Torsion says, oh my God, I don't love this comment so much. It's just perfect, perfectly constructed. Uh, Bryant and Wilson are incorrect about Dreadhorde Arcanist, comma, of course. The card is insane, comma, and I think that a lot of Arcanist's power is, quote, invisible to the opponent. Since when it's being used to cantrip every turn, you don't actually see the effects, but suddenly your opponent just has it all, dot, dot, dot. Hey, Max, thanks for your comment. Sure, an unanswered Arcanist in a fair matchup when nothing is happening ends up being good. But our argument is that it is slow, weak, and you probably should have killed your opponent in those situations. So what you're describing, while reasonable there, I think our argument is generally that you're not going to waterfall this card advantage in a long game in the majority of matchups in Legacy, and you should probably be killing your opponent with more aggressive cards. So I would also like to add that we were talking about Dreadhorde Arcanist in the shell of Tempo Blue-Red Delver decks. I had a number of people message me talking about the new Rug Waterfalls deck, which is a mid-range deck playing the card. But if you listen to our episode, we never once talk about the card in a more fair shell. We only talk about the card in a Tempo shell. So if you stay tuned, you might hear our thoughts on uh, that Rug, that rug mid-range deck. Uh, I don't know, Max, I kind of agree with you, though. Like, it, it's very hard to difficult or to gauge, you know, as a player sitting across from the Arcanist, how much of an impact the card is actually having, because you don't really know if... Uh, I mean, the, the Preordains and the Ponders and the Brainstorms, just you give your opponents uh, so much selection. It really is just terrifying, at least from my perspective as a Miracles player, to just fathom what kind of cards they have in their hand, because uh, it's just continuously being able to sculpt and uh, mold and fit just make everything perfect. I, I do give a little bit of credit to Bryant and Wilson in, in, in their analyses. I do think the context of the board certainly makes um, Arcanist a lot more conditional, but you know when it does pop off, for sure, it is absurdly powerful. Can any of you guys do a German accent? <laughs> All right, no? All right, well, big props to Wilson for addressing the psychological aspect of people panicking about the London Mole. I've been arguing from the very beginning that the effects of the London Mole on the threat of combo decks is an order of magnitude or two lower than most people who worry about seem to think. We even saw people like Anurag, of all people, try Red Black Reanimator during the London Mole test on MTGO. And this is from one Julian Nab, who uh, is... Uh, yeah, you know what, Wilson? I, I'm reading your show notes. I'm going to steal your thunder. It's my favorite co-host on the Everyday Eternal podcast. And... Uh, Hey, Julian, I found out today that you do all the editing, like you by yourself do all the editing and like uh, grunt work for the podcast. So mad respect because I'm, I'm also in the same book, uh, in the same boat. <laughs> so to, so in my defense for Red Black Reanimator, um, it was certainly like litmus testing, just trying to see like to what extent uh, the, the, the deck would, would go. I know a lot of, there's a lot of doomsaying going on. It's kind of interesting in my perspective to sort of like, look at the people who are doomsaying and then like look at their relation to the card gristle brand. I'd be interested to see what the stats are on that. Yeah. Julian, I just want to, you know, springboard off that. I, 
it's awesome the uh, the time that you put into editing and everything. But even more impressive than that is your creative vision for the show and your strategic analysis. Coming coming from my angle, I, I I certainly can appreciate how much work it takes to do that. So the fact that you do a lot of that for the show, it's it's a great podcast, and uh, you do an awesome job. All right, and I'm not gonna lie, the next comment that we're about to read is probably one of the best pieces of feedback that we have gotten as a podcast. Um, it's by Micah Leuben. I don't know how to say this name. But uh, Micah basically wrote um, their own thoughts on Dreadhorde Arcanist. And all in all, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to the mega post, and you can take a look at it. What do you guys think about this post? Yeah, so I wrote a comment here. I think it was very thoughtful. I think that he brought up some points that Anurag maybe – Maybe we could you could have spent a little more time on on the pro arcanist side specifically the free mana aspect of the card I think is probably one of the better points made for the tempo offsetting of of the clunkiness of the card so I think that's reasonable something that I disagreed with specifically is lightning bolt representing more damage than the one when you're comparing it to the goblin piker sized dark confidant creature because Dark Confidant is also, in that hypothetical scenario, drawing you into potential burn spells, uh, which is certainly relevant in the calculation if, if you're also adding in the effect of the card onto the damage that it produces, uh, other than simply the stats of the card. I, I think it's relevant to consider that, that Bob draws you into more aggression as well. So, but other than that, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, obviously a, a, a great comment and well-spoken. So piggybacking on the free effect of Dreadhorde Arcanist, something I read in a feedback to us about the that episode was that it's not really free because it causes you to cantrip or play a lightning bolt or chain lightning in most situations where you normally wouldn't just so you can gain advantage of the Arcanist trigger. And it cre- creates a weird uh, cantripping or gameplay sequence, much like Predict does in Miracles, where it's not natural. It's not the way that you want to be using these cards. So it does come at a slight cost because it's not free from the get-go. You're spending mana to cast that card originally. And I just think that should be mentioned because everyone says it's free, but it does come at somewhat of a cost. Yeah, the deck building cost, the, the, the play pattern cost. And I think you can even see it like... Very apparent in the blue-red deck lists, in the Grixis deck lists that are playing this card, that uh, they have more removal spells. I think like upwards of four lightning bolts and two chain lightnings in blue-red, and then you've got the thought seizes that take the removal spells. Or I mean, in general, thought seizes would do that anyways. But even now, more especially, it has to take copies of swords to plowshares and light- lightning bolts to make sure that you know Arcanist is able to turn sideways and and get that trigger off. Well, what's wrong? I would say that's... The Thought Seize is a very positive example for the card, in my opinion. Like, I think the lists that I see, the Grixis lists with Thought Seize in them, I think utilize the power of Arcanist much more than the straight blue-red aggro cantrip deck. Because a lot of times, Thought Seizing early is solid. Having access to that on turn three can be quite good. And what I like about Thought Seize, too, is that it's it's good against matchups where you're also... You're slowing down into this more mid-rangey deck, and it doesn't punish you as badly against some of the combo decks or some of the decks that aren't fighting you on the straight-up fair blue axis uh, if you're able to take their cards on turns one and three and then have this engine in play, I think, is, is pretty strong. So, I don't know. I, I, like, I like those Grixis versions a bit more than is it in terms of the power of Arcanist specifically, I think. 
Oh, I'm not disagreeing with you that that, that Thoughtseize and Arcanist work very well together. What I mean to say is just like, like Brian mentioned, you get forced into certain play patterns where you have to Thoughtseize before, or you're more inclined to Thoughtseize before you deploy the Arcanist because, you know, you don't want it to get plowed. Otherwise, it's just like a, I mean, it's a one-for-one -one trade, which is cool, but you could get so much more out of the card kind of deal. You're not maximizing on the pot potential of the card, similar to like how, you know, with Predict, you spend a lot of time like, you know, waiting, deploying land drops, and, uh, you know, cantripping in a way that, you know, actually maximizes the, the draw to ability uh, of, of the card. So I see I see I see where the where the you know, the comment is coming from. All right. So section one of this week's episode is called leveling up. It's a request from Albert Lindbaum on what are some basic things that players can do to level up? How can they get better? So that's what we're talking about today, at least in section one. Let me ask you this uh, this question, Brian. What is the most important thing? What do you think is the most important thing to getting better as a Magic player? In my opinion, information and knowledge about the matchup definitely matters a lot. But when I sit down in my local game store, I think the biggest difference to me between myself and the average Legacy player is since the banning of Sensei's Divining Top, I've played 6,000 matches of Legacy compared to someone that if they only play on paper might have... 500 if they're lucky so i think getting your reps in is incredibly important and moto is a pretty good tool for that yeah i agree i think uh when when people generally ask me you know hey should i invest in moto i'm always 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 gonna follow up with you know what is your goal are you trying to get better because magic online is the easiest way the easiest way to find you know at any time of the day someone who is willing to jam games of legacy with you and nothing like experience will teach you the the nuances of all the powerful cards you're you're playing. You know what I mean? Like it takes a while to get used to like random things like, you know, fetching so your opponent can't like wasteland you and then days on the stack, you know, that kind of deal. And and Moto is just a very good platform for It's a little unintuitive. Like Flusterstorm I don't think works as you would think it would intend in paper, but you get a you learn those nuances and you you know eventually just get used to them yeah exactly and honestly i'll say this to to the the listeners as well uh if you are very serious about getting better at magic uh the next time you go to buy like a dual land or something consider consider using that money on a deck for magic online and uh uh, I promise the, the amount of knowledge you gain. Actually, you know what? Not even that. You don't even have to do that because all these rental services that are out and about nowadays, like, you know, mana traders and card hoarders, they make it so easy to get cards and you can even pay with the, the tickets you win. Uh, it's, it's, it's very easy to go infinite. I would highly, highly, highly recommend uh, looking into some of that stuff. I got into Moto about two and a half years ago. And it was around Christmas time. I had a little extra money after the holidays. And I was like, hey, I'm going to dual boot my Mac. I'm going to partition it so that way I have a PC side of my Mac and I'm going to get in. And at the time, I thought I was a pretty good legacy player. You know, I thought when I entered a room, I was probably in the top 50 or so players out of 800, whatever. And then I started playing on Moto and my play skill went way up, like a dramatic amount up. And I already thought that I was pretty good compared to most people. And looking back on it, I was very, very wrong. Like I just wasn't as good as I could have been because everyone around me had been getting better by playing Moto. And I had just been plateaued for a couple of years at that time. And I noticed once I started playing Magic Online, my knowledge and understanding of every matchup just changed dramatically. Yeah. But playing on Magic Online isn't exactly uh, 
the same as playing in paper. Like me as a Miracles player, I can promise you, fetch lands piss me off like nothing else because all the shuffling, just like, yeah, okay, well, I think it just boils down to the dynamics of Magic Online. You know, you don't have to shuffle. Uh, they're chess clocks, so you're not responsible for your opponent's management of the time. Uh, what 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 else are some good paper versus moto differences that uh, you know you should be aware of? So I was driving home from a 2K last weekend, and I was talking with someone that doesn't play online, and they happened to run a game store, and they were asking me why I like playing on Moto, and I mentioned that I go there every Monday night to play Legacy, and in the time that I am there to play one event, I could have played three five-match leagues in those four hours, and they were just flabbergasted that I could play 15 matches in four hours, and I said, that's the speed of Magic Online. So I'm not waiting on other people to finish. I'm not watching lands versus miracles, you know, just spin their wheels. You get to play a lot of matches because people are always sitting there ready, waiting to play. Yeah, I remember back in the day when there were like only daily events and it was just like so tough to find opponents actively. And now that they introduced like legacy leagues like a while back, it's it was just it's so it just makes magic legacy so much more accessible uh the sheer volume of games that you get is is incredible and i there are a lot of good players who test on magic online so like as as someone who still has a lot to learn uh being able to compete against these really good players is is almost just it's like a it's a rare opportunity because you know i get to see like at the highest level of magic this is what my opponents are doing and this is what i can learn from you know all the mistakes that I, I make in the matches. So uh, there are some downsides, though. Uh, Wilson, how do you feel about the the meta game for Magic Online versus uh, Paper? I know a lot of people will say certain things. That's interesting. That's not exactly where I was going to dive into this conversation, but I think that that's it's a it's a leading question because obviously you can over meta game for Magic Online decks. You can build decks that are more tuned to beat some of the tuned and tier one and more difficult strategies to beat. In general, that's tempting anyways. It's not just a magic online problem. If you play test a lot against other players that are good or who you respect, or you play in a competitive area, in general, I think that that can sometimes hurt your deck choice at a larger event like a Grand Prix. And I, I found myself improving when I learned, I think from Philip Braverman, uh, a good buddy of mine, who I, I, I don't even know if he, he actively would verbalize this, but I, I noticed that he made a lot of deck building decisions where he would just be good against the random stuff and legacy. And he's such a good player that he would, he would leverage his skill in fair matchups to uh, essentially barely outplay very good decks in times when it matters, but make sure that he has all the tools available in his deck to be all the random stuff. So uh, the burn decks of the world, the cloud post decks, the dredge decks, all these different things you happen to run into at a big event. The issue is legacy is changing a bit. So even at a large event, it's being, it's getting more homogenized where people are playing a lot more of those competitive tier one decks, uh, more, more of the stock 75s or stock 73s or what have you. So it's not, it's not quite that extreme as what it used to be. But in general, I, I do think it's definitely worth pointing out the sort of the inbred metal magic online and, and, and how to sort of apply that to the paper magic is certainly worth considering. I like that you mentioned that, Wilson, because when I got out of college in 2011, I started traveling to a lot of Star City games. 
people talked about how the event didn't start until round six because you would run into mono green cloud post when you were 4-0 and things like that. And people are just playing off the wall decks that don't really exist anymore. Like once you're past round two in a star city nowadays, you, you just don't see those decks anymore. And I wasn't something I've really thought about until you mentioned it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's changed a ton. Absolutely. So. Uh, one thing I would like to point out about like the online meta versus paper is I think for Star City Games Syracuse, it was one of the few times where I think they actually aligned very closely because large paper events, I always prepare more for Delver decks and Stoneforge Mystic decks. And at the time, that's what the online metagame was. But I think that we as a legacy community give too much credit to the online metagame because it's less than 100 people making the decisions for the entire metagame. And I hear even locals talk about it. They're like, hey, did you see this 5.0 that was published? It's 6% of the metagame, but I know that's secretly just one person grinding a lot of leagues. So take things with a grain of salt. Don't let it influence your metagame decisions too much because when you enter a Grand Prix, that there's not going to be 6% of slivers, for example. You'll be lucky if you even saw it sitting near you. That's a really good point. Uh, I mean, there are, also, there are also some pitfalls. So I, I will say that when you first join Magic Online, uh, that's when you have the most to gain in terms of format knowledge, uh, matchup complexities, things like that. Uh, however, I have to wonder, Brian, now that you're 6,000 matches deep, have you been experiencing like diminishing returns on the value that you get out of Moto and how do you how do you handle that? So I think there definitely are diminishing returns because I'm gaining very little nowadays. So what I've actually found is I'm playing less of it. Which is like kind of a shitty answer, but it's the truth. So I'll log in, I'll play like four leagues a week nowadays, just because I know that I'm not gaining a whole lot out. But I think the times where you are gaining information is when there's metagame shifts. So War of the Spark, Modern Horizons. So recently I've upticked my play testing again because I'm testing out a new list, one that I mentioned previously with Defense Grid and Mox Opals and stuff like that. So I'm trying something new. But after I get my 100 matches in or 150 matches in, I understand how my list plays against the metagame and I tend to lose interest and then I go back to doing yard work or whatever around the house that I can, you know, help out with. Yeah, for sure. I think there's like a certain threshold of... uh... Um, like it's just like the learning process, right? Like you spend a lot of time learning about card interactions when you add a card in or you take a card out or something like that. And, and that is the true utility, I think in magic online, like I was speaking with Jarvis and he said, like, it's pointless to just constantly grind, uh, you know, uh, the leagues, uh, for fun, unless you're actually actively a learning something new about your deck and like trying to get uh, deck interactions or, you know, be using it for some ulterior purpose, maybe like content creation or something like that. Um, and one solution that, you know, he offered was to actually just reach out to format experts or players that you, you know, you really think are good with certain decks and just grind games with them. Cause then you actually get to play like really high end magic. Um, and I don't know, there, there's a lot to learn from that in and of itself, right? You don't want people like spell snaring dazes against you, which has happened a number of times on on Magic Online, um, but like those sort of things, like you know, you wanna you wanna clear the coast of that, and then you know, get actual really good uh, quality testing in. That, that that being said, like obviously, like you know, like I'm like I'm saying, like interactions testing is is very important, and uh, when you're when you're trying new cards, it's important to get the reps in just to see, like like you know, just yesterday, like this is a very intuitive thing, but I was streaming with Ren and Six, and I was like, all right, well, brainstorm with my Jace, and then I was like, oh wait, I should have activated Ren first. Simple things like that, 
you may not be used to, but seeing them play out is very important. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was playing at my local Monday night. My opponent has a Jace the Mind Sculptor and a Narset Parter Avails in play. They're digging for Terminus. I have Lethal on board. And what they do is they plus Jace and then use Narset. And after the game, I was like, hey, just so you know, if you minus Narset and then brainstorm, you get to see more cards. And my opponent just said, but that's not what I wanted to do. And I was like, all right, sorry for letting you know that you could have seen seven cards instead of your four. But it's one of those things that you learn. Yeah. So besides, you know, getting reps in, because obviously experience and uh, legacy is the format that rewards experience the most. Um, what are some other important things that you think, or maybe like just like under talked about things? I, I have a lot to say. <laughs> All right, Ooh, buckle up. Let me get comfortable. You know, for the average for the average listener here, I don't know what our demographic is. We may have some hardcore grinders. We may have some people who get to play one big legacy event per year, and then everybody in between, right? I think what you guys are describing is ideal, sort of the 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 bar for leveling up. Like if you can do some of the things that you guys are describing, you could level up to be like you guys. But I think that some of what you're describing could be intimidating for some people. You know, you're describing hundreds of matches on Magic Online since the banning of Sensei's Divining Top, all these different things. And there's nothing wrong with talking about this, but I would like to also give a perspective of potentially some listeners who have some different constraints where maybe they're sitting back and saying, I just can't do that. Or what are some other, what are some other things I can do other than just the hundreds and hundreds of reps? How can I maybe maximize my time in the reps that I can, that I have? Uh, and I sort of have a theory about this. So the first thing about how to spend your time in testing to best maximize whatever time you have in, 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 in testing decks to be to level up in legacy is to first figure out if you're more of an intuitive thinker or if you're you take more of a heuristic memorization approach to analyzing new information. So that is, do you generally look at information in a game? and intuitively consider trends that you have experienced in the past that come together and allow you to address this new situation in a way that is sort of intuitively natural for you? Or are you always thinking, where have I seen this situation before and where, how can I implement a rule, even if it's a complex set of rules, like how can I pull out a rule, uh, maybe a small rule that I have made for myself given the information at hand that I can apply here? If you are more of in the intuitive camp, and there's no right or wrong here. I think people are just sort of made in these different ways. You can take these the Myers-Briggs tests for, for a job sort of similar to that. But if you happen to be naturally more of an intuitive thinker, I think that you likely can spend your time a little bit different than simply jamming hundreds and hundreds of games because you, I think you reach diminishing returns faster. And I think you should be more aware of the value of, of variable experiences for that way of thinking. And what I mean by that is if you are, if you are more of, of, of a person who thinks like that, you need to expose yourself to different types of in-game situations. Something that's a little unorthodox that I'll promote here on a legacy podcast is I think when I improved the, the most I've ever improved in magic is when I decided that I wanted to learn how to draft, right? So to do that, you know, I, was, I had a sales job on the road a ton, didn't have infinite time to play magic, but I listened to limited resource podcasts to start learning how to, how to draft when I couldn't play. 
and then you know the occasional paper draft or what have you. And then I did end up drafting a ton on Magic Online to to really become good at it, but didn't have to spend the ongoing time throughout my life to continue to necessarily hone that skill. And I think that I applied some decision-making skills, uh, some various things with combat, just general magic gameplay skills to how I play Legacy, and I feel like I've improved tremendously from learning how to do that. And then even if you don't want to learn something like drafting, more specifically to Legacy, I think that if you expose yourself to a variety of different types of strategies and put yourself in the seat of those strategies and try them out for yourself, whether it's proxying or if you have, if you are somebody who's playing once a month legacy or something, maybe borrow a deck from a friend, just sort of bite a bullet every now and then play something that is not your favorite deck. I think it's also a good way of, of becoming better faster at legacy than, than only being able to play one deck for a long time. I know Bryant, you, uh, started I know I know you know test is your baby you've perfected tests you've played tons and tons of tests but I noticed that you have you definitely played a lot of other decks in your life and when you uh, you know you've spoken about becoming more competitive at magic you've gone out there and you've played a, a variety of different decks in different formats so I don't know if you want to speak to that at all if that's been a positive experience yeah definitely so but, part of like I, something that we talked about earlier was knowledge and you get twice as much knowledge sitting on the other side of the table when you're playing different decks against your own deck or just different decks in general. And playing other formats is a great way of leveling up. So Wilson mentioned limited. When I was playing TES right out of college, I struggled really, really badly with combat math. I actually missed an SCG top eight because I couldn't do combat math properly and swung wrong with an empty the Warren's horde. So that was a little uh, intimidating at the time. So something that I did was I started playing more limited and I got better at combat math. And standard also helps uh, to a lesser extent, in my opinion, but standard definitely helps with that. I think one of the important things about standard is sequencing right now, because you have all these different lands with different abilities. Some come into play untapped, some come into play tapped. So something standard does is it forces you to think turns in advance when it comes to your mana. And if you can port that into cantrips, it will help you sequence your ponders, your preordains, your brainstorm, so that we can maximize the incremental gains between the differences. So depending on what your hand needs, you might want to preordain before you ponder. You shouldn't be brainstorming on turn one, for example, because you want to maximize that with a fetch land, like those sort of things. So it's all about getting those small values. And I think with modern, modern is the best format. And you guys are welcome to disagree with me on this, but for teaching you how to mulligan aggressively because the format is so linear and there's so little hate. And I shouldn't say it's so little hate. So much diverse hate where everything, the hate that does see play is crippling. So people either A, mulligan for it or just don't have it. So you're really rewarded for sticking to a dedicated game plan. And if you're doing that, you should be mulliganing aggressively to do so. So I think modern's really good for mulligans. I'll say uh, one more thing along this topic since before we move on from reps and just generally the time, the time spent in, in Legacy to level up. This definitely requires a baseline of play, what I'm about to talk about here. So you can't just not play much Legacy at all and go into the theory crafting. But something that helped me when I had a, a job that I had to spend a couple hundred miles on the on the road every day in my car, and I just physically could not be in front of a cons computer screen reading articles or, or playing Magic or any of those things, I would start sideboard mapping out my decks in my head and uh, 
and essentially list building as I was incredibly bored listening to podcasts or whatever. And for me, the the obsession over theory crafting with the decks that I was playing really helped me hone in uh, a a really great game plan before uh, going out and and testing it exactly. Instead of sort of just throwing darts at the dartboard, I had a lot of detailed reasons for what I was doing before I spent the time testing because at that time in my life, I didn't have infinite time to test. So I I knew I was constrained by this this you know factor of time, which I wish that I could just try every card, but I just knew that I couldn't. And so that's that's what I did. And for me, that's when I learned sideboard mapping that helped me even in times in my life where I do have more time to play Magic. The I think the sideboard mapping is a huge skill. It helps you think about the meta as a whole, think about all your card choices and, and how they play out and why they're there. But again, that requires a baseline of legacy experience. And I think you do definitely have to put in a solid number of reps to get to the point where you can theory craft sort of at a macro level uh concerning the format, uh, you know, regarding your deck at that point. So, yeah, those, those are just my points when it comes to reps. What I'm hearing is, I got to play Death in Texas now. Yes. <laughs> We've all been waiting three and a half years for that to happen. Is that how long Top Spin banned? I don't even know. I, I don't know. I, I, see, I see what you guys are talking about, and I've, I've mentioned this multiple times uh, in, in my own, like, self-thoughts about how to improve as a Miracles player to put – miracles down as a deck and to try other decks because you're right there's a lot to learn um especially you know for things like the combat step so uh, well honor this is not a right or wrong thing i don't want you to be discouraged by feeling like you have a different approach to what i'm saying i think that you think you have a very different way of thinking about game play than i do i know we've talked about this on some longer road trips maybe to philadelphia or something like that where I think that you do enjoy take or you you naturally take a more heuristic approach where you recall based on past experiences specific card to card interactions and I know that you absolutely take the new circumstances into account but I do think that the reps with with your deck for you are a, are a valuable way of continuing your exploration of, of the archetype. And I don't think that's like a bad thing at all. I think it's just the way that uh, benefits you uh, specifically with miracles. And I think that's, Hey, let me ask thing. you this question though. Um, and I, I mean, you may have already like covered some of these topics, but you mentioned like my strategy, which is basically just play all the games, learn all the interactions, uh, that card to card heuristic. What do you feel about that in comparison to uh, the more intuitive play style? I just don't think it's something that can be compared I don't think it's a, this is better or this is worse. I think it's something that, for example, if I were interviewing you for a job, I would try to figure out which is more natural for you. So then I can put you in a position in the company that benefited your skills. And in this, and if we were to apply that metaphor to this, it's that I would, as your, as your, as your, your little angel on your shoulder or whatever, I would try to figure out what is best for you so that your play style method could benefit how you naturally think about the game. And I think for most of us, we actually pursue the things that we are naturally inclined to be good at, which is why I believe you naturally pursue the way of playtesting miracles that you do is it's also just the way that way that you think. So 
Yeah, that's my pushback on your question is like I don't think that there's a good or bad at all. I think it's just sort of you have to know yourself uh, and and knowing yourself helps you improve better in the game. Okay, yeah, I like that take. I like that take a lot. Um, do we want to talk about bluffing next or do we want to talk about dexterity issues? So I actually have something really quick to add on before we quit talking about Magic the Gathering Online. So in my opinion, one of the biggest things or reasons to keep on playing Magic Online, even though you have plenty of reps with your deck, is staying up with the trends. So back during GP Louisville a couple of years ago, this was before I got into Magic Online. It was in February. I got into Magic Online around January. I had played in GP Louisville. It's day two of round day two round one. It's so like round 10, I believe. I get paired against the new deck at the time, Turbo Depths. I knew it was a not-of-this-world deck that ran main deck Thoughtseize and Hemnatorox and one with Dark Depths. I had played a couple matches against it at a local, and I felt pretty confident. I go into sideboarding, and I knew that my local player had played Abrupt Decays in their board, but no real permanent hate, and I knew that I could win before their Dark Depths dealt me lethal, so I never ended up boarding in any bounce spells. Well, let me tell you. My opponent played turn one sphere resistance, turn two sphere resistance, and I did nothing the entire match. After the match, I tweet about how I couldn't believe that they had sphere resistance because I had played against this person locally who didn't have it. And someone tweeted at me saying I should know better and I would know that if I kept up with Magic Online. So if you are a part of the community and play a decent amount of matches, you'll know when decks shift to different answers. So, for example, if Mindbird Trap is really popular in Elves, you'll know to consider it before you go off playing combo. Um, that's just a real-life example for me, but it's the same sort of thing. Like, you'll know if, I don't know, if Maverick starts playing three chokes for Anurag, like that sort of thing. Or even, like, the differences between, like, specific types of Graveyard Hate, for example, like Leyline versus Fairy Macabre versus, versus Surgical. Like, you know, it, it's good to know. Again, like those like nuances. So, And even other than just experiencing those cards, a couple websites have really been big game changers for this, like MTG Goldfish, for example. You know, I mean, obviously it's informed from Magic Online, but the fact that that information exists in such an accessible way is exactly what you're talking about. I mean, people, people are now copying tech more exactly than they were, it used to be Wild West, right? But lists are becoming more homogenous uh, and largely because of these websites, I think. All right, cool. So I know that Wilson had quite a bit to say on bluffing slash reading the opponent. So Wilson, take it away. Okay, I wasn't ready for that. All right, let me, let me look at my thoughts here. Okay, so for me, bluffing goes into two categories. And this is something that having done uh, a podcast before this podcast, and so I've been doing some legacy podcasting for maybe like two, three years, three years now, bluffing is something that people request that we discuss, and it's hard to talk about. You know what I mean? I mean, we're sitting here on an audio ch- channel uh, trying to talk about these things that are very, they're visual, they're intuitive and flowy, very specific to gameplay. But let's try to theoretically talk about bluffing. I think there's physical bluffing and there's mental bluffing physical is a lot more simple to describe and it's really difficult in practice as magic players uh, it's just not like a natural part of of our game practice it's something that maybe for some other games are are more core to being good at those games but because magic is is structured the way it is it's not something that people 
uh, go in thinking about. There's some amazing Hall of Famer pros who never do this. And in fact, not only do they not physically bluff, they have probably have physical tells, but magic is structured in a way where it doesn't matter nearly as much. But I'll tell one story where this paid off tremendously for me. And I think it was a tournament that I ended up doing well at. And I think that this, this play allowed me to win the game. Um, this isn't me trying to brag at all. This is like when I was at the, like the peak of play and I don't know why I just sort of like I was feeling it this day, but somebody cast, it was an elves player. They cast a blind cabal therapy and I immediately went to tap my blue source. I was playing a ad nauseum tendrils deck. And then I brought my hand back, thought for like just one second or half second. I was like, it's good. And then he just snapped named brainstorm and I did not have brainstorm in my hand. And if I if it were just like slightly different, it could have been obvious that that was a cheesy bluff. But because I think it was such in the flow of the game, it was an example of something that is both within the reasonable rules of, of playing paper magic, not scummy because it's it's you know it's just being uh, it's just an interesting part of the game. Like my opponent was like, wow, that's that's pretty sick. Um, and I think for me that was my best experience of physically bluffing in a game. Do you guys have any examples or thoughts of You want to hear my, to my subset of data? I don't like bluffing. Okay. I don't like employing that technique. Not because not because I think it's bad practice or anything, but I actually I technically I usually try to adhere adhere by the mantra of I usually try to stick to the mantra of play the best that you can technically and after that, once you know your play is like technically the best then look into 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 the sort of like other aspects of the game and i'm not saying like don't ever bluff like it's bad to bluff like obviously like if if it's free to bluff then you know you probably just take that opportunity but i i i don't spend a lot of time you know practicing that skill because well a it's very hard to bluff on on magic online i'm gonna call you out right here you have a miracle bluff set up on your magic profile. Okay, that's true. Life. That's different though. That's because every time you draw a card, that's you're because Rugved played me. He te we tested some matches in mir in like the miracles whatever, and he said six times in a row, accurately that I drew terminus for the turn because uh, the stupid miracle mechanic. So after that, I just turned it off or turned on the bluff mechanic. But what whatever. Anurag is correct. Every single time your opponent draws a miracle card, it pauses for a second and it lets you know that they drew a miracle card. Yeah. So. I had to do that for my own well-being, but also you can blame Rugbed for that one. Um, yeah, no, that's just my take on it. I don't particularly like bluffing. Bryant? I have a couple of things to say. One, I like that Anurag used the term technical play. Some of my friends have described my play as being very technically good. Uh, I very rarely make small play mistakes like tapping my mana wrong or anything like that, and it's something that you gain with a lot of experience playing Magic. But I don't think that just because you're not playing technically or you're a perfect technical player doesn't mean you can't get anything from bluffing. Uh, like Wilson said, I did that this week online and my opponent was just like very nice. Like I fetched very quickly, I tapped for a blue untapped and then they're like, wow, I, I don't know. And then they cabal therapy me named brainstorm. I untapped and killed them. So that happens. There's no, there's, if you can get away with it, there's no reason to not do it. It's not scummy. It's just an advantage you have over your opponent. If you're able to get away with it. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was uh, the next bullet is how to read a game as it progresses. And I've been asked this multiple times, but it's very difficult to explain 
these gut reactions that Wilson was talking about where you're like, you just know that your opponent drew X card, but you don't know how to exactly tell it. So I have an example to show for once how to exactly tell. So my opponent was playing Stoneblade. They're on the play. They cast Ponder. They shuffle. They pass. I play a turn one discard spell. They missed their second land drop. and But they have a Force of Will and a Brainstorm. And then a bunch of white cards. I know that next turn I can add Nauseam and kill them. So my opponent draws and quickly passes. And I'm like, hmm, that's weird. They didn't bother brainstorming looking for a second land. I was like, I'm pretty sure my opponent drew Flusterstorm. So instead of going for it the next turn, I played a Ponder, which resolved that found Hope of Gearper, and I killed my opponent on the next turn. Sure enough, they revealed that Flusterstorm that they had drawn. So there's weird tells and mental pickups that you can get as the game progresses. Like, it would be weird that my opponent wouldn't cast a Brainstorm there, so they must have drawn something. And really good players like Anurag will use that against you. So if I know that you should have cast Brainstorm there, maybe Anurag drew another Swords to Plowshares, but wants me to respect something so that way he can get another turn in. So that's another example of going one level deeper. Yeah, what Jarvis always berates me for uh, in terms of, of bluffing, right, is you always want to pick a story, paint that picture like your Bob Ross, just you know, blow it out of the park kind of deal. Um, you have to stick to that story and sell that story really, really well. Uh, so, so like you mentioned, right? Like not casting the brainstorm in that sort of situation kind of just makes it really obvious uh, that something else is up. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's good, good on you. Good job. Yeah. So, just to sort of bring it round circle here, what what you guys are describing is definitely the the second part of bluffing. The way that I think about it is the physical versus mental. This is the mental where. There's nothing you guys can be a, a, have at computer screens. There's nothing, no physical tells or anything. It's how you play the game can be a bluff if you do it in a way to lead your opponent into thinking that you have something that you do not, right? Bryant sort of described the opposite where the opponent was easily read by you but could maybe have bluffed you if played differently. I don't know exactly the whole situation. But basically, you're describing a situation where they did not bluff you. And if you put yourselves in the shoes of the person who could bluff, I would say the first uh, rule I follow for when to try to bluff to gain advantage is when you are at a serious disadvantage in a situation. And for me, it's one of the uh, last efforts to get back into the game to get my opponent to play very suboptimally or very conservatively around something that I do not have. In general, I think magic is made in a way where that's usually not what you should be doing. So oftentimes that should be employed if you likely think you're going to win the game otherwise. And there's a lot of the times when this comes up. It's like, you know, in Legacy, there's like a turn five or something where you're, you're probably going to die if your opponent goes for whatever combo they have or, or whatever. And really, at that point, your only chance is to make them think you have something. That's the time when when you do it, other than just proudly, you know, playing out the creature that that doesn't matter, and then your opponent knows every single card in your hand, and it's just going to kill you or something. I get there's there's a wide category of the stuff. I think that that you guys described something that's pretty well. So we had a listener message us through our website asking about bluffs or reads that they can get through Magic Online, and at the time, I couldn't think of anything to tell them. 
but there's one that I use all the time that very rarely works, but it's worked a couple times and has gotten me a win where I'm playing against a reanimator. My opponent puts a creature in the graveyard, then I'll click on Dark Ritual because it tells my opponent Brent Cook is about to pay a cost or is paying cost. And then I, I unclick the Dark Ritual thing for a second, click it again, then I wait. And then they don't reanimate their creature because they think I have Surgical Extraction. That's insane. So yeah. there's small things that you can do. I mean, it works maybe one in every 20 times, but it's there's no reason to not do it if you can't gain something from it, you know? So the next topic is dexterity issues. I wrote this one down because these are small things that I've learned over the years. And they're pretty basic things that everyone can do. So if you're a beginner and you just want to do basic things right in order to level up a tiny bit, these are some things that can help you out. Shuffling. There's so many of my opponents at large events just show me what they're playing when we sit down. Like they'll sit down, they don't, they're not careful when they take their deck out, or when they shuffle, they'll give you one riffle down the center. And I'm like, oh, my opponent's playing Death and Taxes. I shouldn't keep a hammer with duress in it. Um, like those sort of things. Just don't give your opponent any information that you don't need to do. The second thing is when you're pulling out all your stuff, don't give away any information that you don't have to do. So I just mentioned showing your opponent your deck life pads no one ever thinks about life pads but people sometimes will leave the previous match there and if i see 2020 and then a line under it that means somebody got comboed that game and if or if i see 2020 minus one minus three minus three minus three they're playing delver secrets if i see 15 they're playing emrakul those sort of things so there's small advantages you can take from that information like hey maybe i'll keep a hand with a dress in it or a thought caesar that sort of thing like you know that your opponent's playing this style or this archetype and something that i feel very passionately about is writing your opponent's hand down and i know that honorad disagrees with me on this but the oh i'll keep them revealed until i cast brainstorm don't fall for that because at some point your opponent's going to cast brainstorm and just pick them up and now you've lost that information or you knew that they had a disenchant in their hand, but you didn't wasn't weren't sure if it was nature's. Uh, I can't think of the name of the new one. This the split uh, nature's chant. one, Na- nature's chant, or actually disenchant. But you might have a cabal therapy in your hand or something like that. But it's been five turns since they brainstormed, so now you can't remember if they had it. Those sort of things. So I just don't think that you should fall for the. Oh, I'll just keep it down. And I understand time restrictions are a thing, but it takes 30 seconds to write down a hand or you can say go and then write down your opponent's hand. Like it doesn't have to be that second. And the last thing, and I tell this to everyone I play that does it, but there's a way that some players hold their hand that they think is very cool where the cards form an arc. But what they don't realize is that it causes their sleeves to buckle. And when this happens, you can see the reflection of the top of your opponent's cards through the top of the sleeve. So there's been a number of times where I'm facing a blue deck and my opponent's thinking that they're looking cool to their friends or whatever and causing their hand to buckle and curl so that way it's arced. But then I can see the reflection in their sleeves and I see that if a blue card has a red reflection, it's one of two things. It's either Brainstorm or Force of Will. And I'm certainly not going to go ahead and at that point knowing that they likely have a Force of Will in their hand. I will say one thing about the writing down the hands thing. So maybe this is just because of my own ineptitude, but usually the reason that I... So what happens is when I get thought seized, I'll always tell my opponent, you know, hey, don't worry, just, you know, finish your turn. I'll, I'll keep it up for you. Um, and usually it doesn't happen, but sometimes people know uh, what what the, what's going to happen is... Uh, what, what I tell them is, 
write it down on my turn while I'm taking my time, and that way we can save 30 seconds or something like that. Or sometimes what I do is I'm like, don't worry about writing it down, and I write it down for them. Good guy on or on. Yeah. I, I know it's, like, strategically not in my favor, but I'm not – first of all, I'm not going to lie. Like, um, but but I, I think it's just, like, it saves me, like, 30 seconds sometimes in a match, and, and that time really adds up. And <clears throat> for me, specifically with the deck I play, it's very slow. You know, it's not it's not necessarily the best. Yeah, that's just something that I have gotten in the habit of doing. I'm surprised that that saves time. I would think that writing down your hand for your opponent or in, or con- communicating the the awkward uh, song and dance of keeping your hand up until you don't anymore kind of thing. In my experience, I'd rather just my opponent write down my hand and we can continue on with the game, you know. But I see, I see what you're saying, teach their own, so... <laughs> We have a note that says, don't play, sn- don't play slow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't write that, uh, but I can certainly understand. Like, uh, in my past few Grand Prix, uh, I've gotten a lot of draws. I will say, in this most recent one, I did not get a draw. However, uh, that is a very good point. Always be conscious of the time. The time is your enemy. So the actual next section is the logic behind games. So one of the things we've already talked about regarding bluffing is making a plan and sticking to it. So when bluffing, I think we already talked about this. If we didn't, it was in the show notes and we just missed it. But make a plan and stick to it. So if you're going to pretend that you have spell purse in your hand, you need to sell it. So you can't act like you have spell purse in your hand one turn and then the next turn tap out and then start acting like you have spell pierce again. Like it's not a consistent story. So your opponent's not going to believe it. So something very similar to that is sticking to your plan. So if you know that you're out to winning this game is your opponent misplaying or you finding exactly your one of play to that out, give yourself as much time and as many looks at that card as you can get in order to give yourself that win. Yeah, actually I think that's, I think that's super, super critical because if you half ass your plan, right, then you end up just using your resources not as optimally po- as possible and like I, this is pretty bland and pretty straightforward but then like there's there's no way that like you can 50 50 between one direction and another and expect to um reliably accomplish both because you know you're just not optimizing uh either route and what ends up what ends up happening is that you just you hurt yourself over the long run can you give an example of what you're talking about yeah, sure. So sometimes, like, I'll be playing against, like, Delver of Secrets, right? And I need to choose, uh, like, let's say how I want to answer their creatures, how I want to stabilize the board, um, you know, like, based on what I'm picking up from their from my opponent's hands. Like, sometimes, like, you know, I, I have to look at my hand and say, like, all right, look, they've pondered three turns in a row. There's no way they don't have, uh, you know, like a Force of Will in their hand. So I have to actually aggressively shuffle away, you know, valuable cards like AK that I would almost never shuffle away otherwise, or valuable cards like Swords to Plowshares uh, in favor of like, you know, something that actually is very, 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 uh, or that I think will be more relevant to the situation. Does that kind of make sense um, to stick to my plan so that eventually I can create that dream scenario of like Terminus into, uh, into, uh, Cluster Storm or Force of Will. Whatever it is, yeah. Or, like, there's some times where I'll look at, like, a, I'm playing against Eldrazi, and, like, I identify, like, all right, like, three town, three turns down the line, I need to find, you know, this Terminus so that I can win the game. So I will shuffle away, like, you know, cards that in, in the short term look really good, but in the long term, like, do not get me closer to that Terminus. Yes, yeah, so I do know what you're saying. I, I do want to provide a, a warning sort of 
a heads up here that I do think that you have to be flexible enough to change something when strategically it makes sense to do that. So I think while this advice that you're giving is absolutely true, and I, I, I can envision a lot of players who don't do this early on in their Magic careers, I think that like super advanced play is actually determining when to totally change your strategy given the situation, whether that's something that your opponent has done or something you have done. And what I'm specifically thinking of as a Miracles player and have in given this Miracle scenario on Rog is when to end the game, when to get aggressive, you know, when there's enough uh, of a threat in, on board where maybe you use a plow in a situation instead of waiting for the terminus because you don't want to be within reach of that extra lightning bolt later in the game. I think there's a few things like that that you just have to sort of add to your long plan and, and, and be a, uh, somewhat flexible, if, if that makes sense. Do you, do you think that's fair? Of course, yeah, yeah, I think that's completely fair. I mean, obviously, the the contours of all the games are, are you know, super specific. So, is that a weird, no, weird I like word that. to use? I like that. So one, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the shapes, the textures, Ooh. the curves, the ups, this the is downs. It's very Bob Ross of you. It's, yeah, it's a very. So sensual. I like uh, one one other example I have while while you're talking about this that I think a lot of people don't do this on uh, is mana base management with making a plan and sticking to it. So. People sometimes will fetch a strange combination of like one duel and a bunch of basics where really that specific combination of lands is the weakest to a single wasteland. Then if you are, if wasteland is the only non-basic land hate on your opponent's side, sometimes you really just need to go all in on multiple duels so that sure, they're, if they have the, the three waste hand, you're in trouble. But if you're at the point in the game, like let's say turn three, and they haven't played a wasteland yet, you actually are maximally affected by the first wasteland if you only have a single duel, particularly given certain uh, land makeups where you have a couple two-cost cards or, or what have you. So that's just something that I've experienced uh having to really consider the mana base deeply in these decks that getting a, a large quantity of lands in play matters a lot. And, um, and yeah. So something that Anurag's decks don't do is uh, how to close the door. Sorry, Anurag. Uh, so one thing that you can do is start eliminating your opponents out. So let's say hypothetically you're a Delver Secrets player. You have two insectile aberrations in play and your opponent has three lands. They're at 12 life or whatever. And you know that your opponent's out here because your hand is flush full of counter spells, is finding exactly supreme verdict. So you need to know at that point, hey, maybe I should close the door and start eliminating their outs for finding land. So instead of just waiting with all these counter spells in my hand, I'll counter their cantrips so they never have the possibility of hitting their fourth land draw for supreme verdict. These sort of things are the next level plays that will eventually get you more wins. Not that always countering your opponent's cantrips is right, but you need to think of, hey, how can I possibly lose this game? Which is something that I learned fairly early from an, uh, an article that Brian Brondwin wrote, is start thinking once you're ahead, how do I lose? And start closing those avenues off for your opponent. Yeah, and closing the door, pressing the advantage, those types of concepts get a lot more complicated with these creature decks. But I just want to bring this advice to one of our, I don't know a good term for this, but 
a special archetype in the format. And if you're playing sneak and show, a lot of times pressing the advantage or closing the door literally means cast the show and tell when you can cast the show and tell. I have beaten so many sneak and show players who have conservatively not cast a show and tell when they could have. And all I needed was that one term for some form of interaction to get back in the game. I can't count the number of games that I have that I have won because because of that. So it's very deck dependent, but that's <laughs> just like a specific thought I had for our sneak and show friends that it when in doubt, cast it. Do you think that our podcast is a little anti sneak and show? I feel like we beat up on the deck a lot. Well, there is another great podcast on the scene with a top GP top eight co-host who covers the deck quite a bit and is very positive about it. So uh, I think there's there's a lot of positivity about the deck in the podcasting community. It's okay to provide some balance. So something that you should do is plan ahead. And that means setting up for a future turn. So I talked about sequencing your lands and cantripping, but it also means strategy. So we talked a little bit about uh, Dreadhorn Arcanist and how you don't really want to play turn one thought season to your turn two Arcanist because you'd rather hold it for turn three and blow your opponent out or whatever. But sometimes I like to think about it a little bit differently. So in modern, for example, it was very popular for in like 2013, 2014 to play your turn one thought season into, into turn two Dark Confidant. So that way on turn three, you could play your Haymaker because by then your opponent likely doesn't have much and it protects your Confidant, that sort of thing. And I think that maybe my example here isn't great, but I think there's times where you need to think ahead because your mana efficiency. So with the Jundex, they wanted to play a three drop on turn three. Legacy is not exactly the same, but maybe your hand requires you to play that Thossies on turn one because you know that you're already land light. So after you hit that second land, you don't have a third land. So on turn three, you're probably flashing back the Thossies, but then maybe you want to hold open two mana for... I don't know, another Dread Horror Arcanist or a Young Pyromancer, that sort of thing. So if you're going to curve turn one Thoughtseize into turn two Arcanist into turn three Young Pyromancer Thoughtseize, it makes sense to play the Thoughtseize on turn one. So instead of just thinking, hey, this is what I can do this turn, think about your overall game plan. And I find that a lot of local game store players don't do this enough. They live in the moment almost exclusively instead of thinking two to three turns ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't say that any better than you, so I'll take I'll take the next point we have here. So the next point is take time to consider what if this doesn't go well. Another activity, hobby, sport even, if you'd like to call it, that I enjoy is baseball. And when watching baseball, you can essentially count on the fact that if your team makes an error, a critical mistake at a, at a certain point in the game, you're going to get punished. This is just the way that baseball fate is. It's just, it can be brutal. But I think of legacy as the same way. If you're not playing around a sort of a worst case scenario, if you get a little bit sloppy and just think you're cruising, believe me, the worst thing can absolutely happen to you in the legacy format. There's so many different cards, so many weird and broken interactions that you constantly have to be on your feet thinking, what is the worst case situation? What if they play this card? And a lot of times it, it's, it's uh, something you can do that has no downside. 
you definitely don't want to outplay yourself where you're doing something worse, but you always want to do these no downside plays where you're – a really great example of this is Stifle. If you just get in the habit of when it is free playing around Stifle, you're not going to lose that just brutal game that could derail your entire tournament because you happen to play against the Stifle player and you just got lazy against the hypothetical Stifle on the other side of the board. And I think this can be very, very difficult. And this comes with going back earlier, just the reps, you know, just understanding legacy, sort of having having the sort of uh, knowledge in the back of your head, like what could be on the other side of the board given the information I know. But I think it's incredibly important. Yeah, I think, and this is just like a small story. Uh, I remember like back in the day when like uh, top was was legal. There, I can, I, I, there's so many games where I'm just like so far ahead, and then like you know I, I get sloppy and I like I, I, I tap you know I tap out on my on their end step to play uh, the the top activation, and then suddenly bam, like wear tear destroys both my counterbalance and my top, and I'm just like, wait, I could have completely beaten this sort of situation if I had just like you know been a little bit more um, patient, slower, all thinking kind of deal. So that's a really good point. I like it all. Uh, and honestly, you know what? At this point, I think I'm just ready to win a Grand Prix because uh, all these these awesome tips have been just <laughs> super awesome, helpful. There is a video of Philip Tremaine Braverman. Don't ser- don't use Tremaine. Just search Philip Braverman top eighting a Star City Games Open and just completely dismembering his Miracles opponent in a Miracles mirror match. And his opponent had had everything. I think maybe. Uh, a Jace, a countertop, all these different things going for him was in an extremely solid position to win the game, but got a little bit sloppy on mana utilization and Philip pounced. And I think that game is a perfect example of making sure that you're playing so that the the worst thing does not happen to you uh, and, and just playing very careful. So. so going back to the top example, Samuel James Rukas is a good friend of mine. And one thing that I always thought he did very well with using Sensei's Divining Top is he never forgot the top three of his deck. So there's very uh, rare situations where he would top on his main phase and pass. And then on his opponent's end step, he would top because he forgot wasting mana and then getting blown out by something. Like he just knew, hey, I'm going to draw this. Or, hey, if I need to top out the end of their end step, here are the consequences for doing that. I just thought that he was always very efficient with that card and very good at using it, which is why I thought that he was one of the better Miracles players. Okay, cool. So we've wrapped that up. Time to talk about the second topic of the night. And this is a little bit more, or a little bit less abstract, I guess, and more of a, a deep dive into a new deck list that we saw uh, Twitch streamer Jarvis U, Jarvis Kevin U, JKYU06 uh, stream. And this is kind of a doozy. Uh, so I know earlier I referenced POW 22. Uh, for for any of you uh, astute uh, MTGO observants, you will know that he has been trying out this uh, shardless rug deck, featuring a new card, uh, the new Cascade card called what is it? Crashing Footfalls, uh, and that's like suspend four uh, for a green mana, and then it makes two four four rhinos with trample. And this this list seems like it is. Very fucking awesome. Very strong. Um, what are okay? Well, let's put it this way. And I think as we've spent like so many episodes talking about this card, but uh, just just in general, it's got crashing footfalls, ancestral vision, um, shardless agent, 
Uh, we've, we're looking at Renin 6 as well. All these sweet red-green cards. And then we've also got Dreadhorde Arcanist, because obviously it's not, uh, you know, uh, the eternalglorypodcast.com. Uh, you know, you can donate there too, because mine's put a lot of work into it. Worthy, uh, unless it's got Dreadhorde Arcanist. So uh, it's also in there. So I, I kind of want to, like, you know, explore this. I know, Wilson, you've got a lot of thoughts. Bryant, you think it's fucking awesome, like you're saying. Uh, talk to me. I thought that we were going to sing the intro to this, like, don't, don't go chasing go waterfalls, chasing and it just, like, didn't happen. Waterfalls. I think we should play the show out with that. But I wanted to talk about Dreadhorde Arcanist, because earlier we mentioned the tempo decks and how our previous episode was mainly focusing on them, because when we had recorded that episode, the rug mid-range, the rug cascade deck didn't really exist at the time. Or if it did, it was still fairly new. I think that this is a much better shell for Arcanist because it's taking advantage of something that's breaking the rules, which is casting ca uh, cards without a mana cost from your graveyard. So it can actually pseudo flash back your Ancestral Vision or your Crashing Footfalls, which it's pretty awesome when you can play Shardless Agent into Crash uh crashing footfalls and then also flash it back with dreadhorde on the same turn like that's just so powerful imagine 16 power in one turn like that's just freaking awesome but it does come at a down or a, a slight cost i'll say because with dreadhorde arcanist in this deck you have 17 targets when you look at a deck like blue red delver there's 18 targets in there but in this deck five of those targets are cascade only so if you have those five removed because they're not in your graveyard. You really only have three cards. You have lightning bolt, brainstorm and ponder. And outside of that, the arcanist, if it doesn't have those cascade, those cascade cards, I can't talk. Uh, it's less impressive. Yeah. And I know that we are, we are sharing an exact list that was shared with us, but I think if I were to play this deck, I might want six cascade cards just to increase the power of both. Six suspend cards, we call them cascade cards here because you cascade into them, but just to increase the power of the cascade mechanic and the late game Dreadhorde Arcanist. But yeah, you, you have a, a good point here, Bryant. Dreadhorde Arcanist is definitely going to be less reliable, but also less crucial in terms of getting you ahead because there's so many things in this deck that generate card advantage and continue to get you ahead. So I think it's just sort of a another val another value engine type of card. I mean, I guess I could call this an engine. Uh, I guess the only other engine card here is Renin Six, but there's a lot of cards that create value in the deck, and it's just another one. So I think something like Blue Red Delver relies on these margins where you just need your one threat to stick, and if it does, you're going to be okay. But you usually don't have a ton of resources, and you're you're just sort of getting that last threat in there, and that's sort of scary. And I think this deck sort of operates a little bit differently. But I just want to say generally, this is a sweet deck because it utilizes all these new cards. So not just Dreadhorde Arcanist and Crashing Footfalls. We also have Horizon Lands. Did you already mention that, by the way? No, I did not, no. Okay, because while you were talking, I was actually pulling up the official Waterfalls video, which is actually pretty interesting. I wasn't able to listen to it. I was trying to listen to you and watch it at the same time. But so... And Waterfalls is in the song, the TLC Waterfalls official music video. But the Horizon Lands, this is a perfect deck for them because you want to be casting cards that cost a decent amount of mana. There's a lot of three drops here. Generally, mana is what is keeping you back because you draw so many cards that you are able to use all your mana in turn. But late game, once you flood out 
just continue playing your land drops. Ancestral bunch, play your land drops. This is where you'd want to crack a land for an extra card, and I think that's uh, this is a great utilization of that. And then we have Ren and Six, which a lot of people really enjoy on the forums. And I know a lot of people wanted to know where a legacy home for this would be, and I think this is where you want it, particularly given the Mox Diamonds, which, by the way, side point, are fairly risky with the Cascade cards, but solid with Ren and Six, and solid at turboing out these two drops like Ren and Six, like Dread Arcanist, out on turn one, which is pretty sweet. So I just like that this deck is heavily affected by the new cards in the format, and it's really cool because it's just different. It's not the just flying in with a daggum insect or flipping the one mana wrath every turn or, you know, million copies of Empty the Warrens. This is something that's interesting and a little bit different, so I sort of like it. I don't know why you had to take digs Well, I had to add in... I wasn't going to say test originally, but I decided to just sort of throw everybody under the bus, so... We don't make fun of you for being bald. I mean... I'm not bald. Zing! Oh, wait, no, what is it? Bring! So uh, the next item in the show notes here is something that I wrote earlier, which is when comparing this deck to Shardless Bug, Mox Simon acts very similarly to Deathrite Shaman. It accelerates your fear game to become slightly unfair because if you're casting a turn one Dreadhorde off of a Mox Diamond, then turn two playing a Ponder and then flashing it back, you're now at neutral cards. You've made up for that land that you got rid of which you're probably going to get back later with Ren and Six and it, it basically puts you ahead of other fair decks in the fair deck mirror and I think that's incredibly huge if you can become the unfair deck or essentially change the play draw dynamic yeah I have been testing some uh, <laughs> Mox Diamond Ren and Six piles and I can I can definitely what? see the different yeah I it's it's uh, it's a work in progress Did they have um, in them they do. <laughs> oh, I believe it's the Nicholas Lowell uh, five color. It's close stuff. to that. Yeah, that's that's the uh, the genesis of the of this, <laughs> and um, the difference between a turn two Ren and six and a turn one Ren and six. I, I mean, like it, it it it's it is certainly much more absurd. Like the emotion that I feel when I actually do it than when I just like talk about it. So I, I don't know for anyone who's you know just like hanker and for just like a little bit of adrenaline you know what i mean so no but seriously like i, I think mox diamond is pretty critical i also think like in a format like legacy the difference between getting your shardless agent down on turn two and three cat cataclysmically different especially where you have like such massive payoffs i do like that um this deck list that we're looking at right now is centered mostly around the two and three cmc so for example one card that is noticeably not in this list is jace the mind sculptor um, which I think is a big deal because, you know, Jace the Mind Sculptor has always been and always will be like, well, okay, maybe not always will be, but it's just like a pillar of fair magic, fair blue magic. So, you know, choosing not to play Jace the Mind Sculptor definitely tells you what kind of game this deck is trying to play, uh, which is definitely like, you know, just get on the board, uh, ramp up, use these powerful effects. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I would like to uh, nitpick something you said there. I was watching your stream earlier this week on Rog. And you were talking about playing Teferi over Jace, and you're like, oh, this card sucks. I just wish it was another uh, Teferi. And I just was like, why are you playing so many Teferi? And you're like, ah, oh, I just want to test it. But then you said Jace sucks. And I was like, man, I don't know what to believe anymore. I think Jace is fine, but you were playing three Teferi, one Jace. Are you low on Jace at the moment? No, well, okay, look, look. I say things, but like... <sighs> gotta take everything with a grain of salt like i think wilson said it best like i'm a very emotional player and 
losing losing is just like I don't think Jace is bad, but with so many lightning bolts floating around and counterbalance not being as good as it used to be. Wait, when did I call you emotional? Only, Only all, all the time. time. Very ding ding ding. Um, no, but the I, I mean Jace is still a good card. It's just like a little bit harder for me to maximize and capitalize on it since the format is just like really crazy right now. So something that Wilson pointed out that I thought was pretty great because I don't think I would have noticed this on my own, but force of negation is literally perfect for this rug cascade deck because it is not a counter spell that is revealed to your Charlotte's agent, which initially didn't stick out to me, but it makes perfect sense. But on top of that, this is also the kind of deck that can recuperate from the card disadvantage of having so many pitch effects. So between your Renin 6 plus Brainstorm and Ancestral Visions and Crashing Footfalls and Charlotte's Agents and Dread Hordes, like you're up to your neck with card advantage and incremental gains. So this is the sort of deck where if you use two copies of Forces in the early game, you're going to come back and be fine. So I think that's a really good observation from Wilson. And uh, yeah, just a good find in general. Thank you, Bryant, even though I am just observing in this list that somebody else created, but it is, uh, it definitely looks like it, it, it goes well in this deck. I think back in the day, people would do some nutty things because they didn't want to cascade into counter magic in Shardless Bug. I, I remember even seeing Forbid in Shardless Bug. So a variety of interesting cancel effects. Side note, my first ever sanctioned magic tournament, I got paired against someone running Squee Forbid in their five-color control deck that also had Intuition and Masticore. (laughs) Squee. I love Squee. Squee is great. Okay, so last point. Maybe I'll tee this one up for for you all. When taking a step back and looking at this deck from a metagame perspective, what does this deck do that Grixis Control, Stoneblade, and Blue-White Miracles don't? More specifically, why play this deck? You own a single beta taiga left over from your goblin charbelcher days, and you're just itching to use it. That's probably the biggest reason to play this deck. It runs one taiga. Like, people are always looking for those strange reasons to play a deck. Like, oh, I have an FBB plateau. I might as well play Painter. Like, that sort of thing. People find reasons to play decks for the strangest reasons. And that was a repetitive sentence, but people fucking love their tigers, and this is a deck that you can play. Right, you didn't in. you didn't read the open mouth emoji at the end of that statement, but but yes, <laughs> there you go. That's that's one reason. I think that this deck is reasonable against other fair blue decks. Yeah, I imagine that it's actually very good yeah. against them. So when I was playing, was I playing with you, Anurag, and we played against this deck? We did, yeah. yeah. My feeling was that they didn't ever have to reach the end of their resources while also deploying enough threats that, that we had to pull the trigger on things like Terminus. And cards like Crashing Footfalls add to this deck in that way. It attacks from a different angle as well. So it's it's a single creature threat that is a lot of power across two bodies that you have to deal with pretty quickly. And because of that, I just felt like we were behind a lot. And we even had counterbalances for all these zero drops, and I still think that we struggled against it. So uh, the other thing, too, is if you can establish your mana base, I think that you're reasonable against Delver. And the only other thing that I'd like to see in this list is potentially a better Delver sideboard plan. 
it looks okay. I haven't, you know, mapped this out, and I I would like to see what the how the creator maps it out. But in general, against a, a Delver deck, you're going to win the long game. So as long as you can kill their threats, you're going to be okay. And that's why I'd like to see potentially more uh, removal spells, just just more some kill action against the Delver segment of the format. But if you can do that, I think it's actually pretty good against the Delver decks. Looks like at least. So one thing that I actually do genuinely like about this deck is that it's not playing Tarmogoyf. So in the past, all these shardless decks always ran Tarmogoyf as their way of closing out the clock, because like if you take away Tarmogoyf out of that deck, it's all one and two power creatures, which is actually similar to this. But with Crashing Footfalls, you no longer have to play Tarmogoyf, which is a fairly underwhelming card to cascade into. Yeah, Crashing Footfalls is like two Tarmogoyfs in a single card, which is pretty nice. Yeah, which is, I, I like it a lot. I think for me, like what I like a lot about this deck is that it's just so mana efficient. Like cascade spells are, I don't know, they're just like zero mana for so much power and you're abusing it with cards like... I mean, like, honestly, like, the Raid on Ancestral uh, Vision and Clash Crashing Footfall, even if you have to wait, like, a bunch of turns, like, in post-board games, is still, like, so... It's still, like, okay. I mean, that obviously the time thing, but the mana efficiency is one thing that I just really like about the deck. Like, Dreadhorde Arcanus flashing back all these uh, spells for the cheap cheap is, is sick. That's an interesting point. I'm not going to totally disagree with it. I think that you get a lot of value for your mana. You do get bottlenecked on mana, though, I think, because of the inherent clunkiness of running a bunch of three drops and everything. If you live long enough, you get two Tarmogoyfs for one green mana or for free. So so a card that I think was super cool that hasn't really gotten a whole lot of discussion that was printed in Modern Horizons is Magmatic <clears throat> Sinkhole. It's a red delve spell, which isn't really talked about. But uh, it's six mana, delve five, deals five to a creature or a planeswalker. That is huge. It kills a Jace that pluses. It kills Teferi. kills Gurmag Anglers. The card is just, like, freaking awesome. I'm a huge fan, and it's playing one of those in the sideboard. I don't think people are playing this card enough because I think it's incredibly versatile if you're playing red and just a good card in general. And uh, my next point I wanted to address was I think that this is the first true blue mid-range deck that we've seen in a long time. I don't actually think that this deck is a control deck by any means. I think by definition, it's definitely a mid-range deck that happens to play just four copies of Forcible in the main yeah, deck. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually skimmed over Magmatic Sinkhole just being a new card. I thought that was something else. And so I'm sort of reassessing my statement about the number of removal spells in the sideboard now that I see that. I, I think that it actually looks like a pretty good plan for just killing a bunch of things. So. All right, so we have a couple episodes coming up. Our next one will be on the State of Combo, and the one after that will be a fan mailbag episode. So you can submit your questions using the contact form on theeternalglorypodcast.com.com. And after that, you can scroll down to the footer that where you will find our contact form and use the subject line Jeremy3, or you can just use episode 11. But you use one of those and submit your questions for our mailbag episode. We will not be accepting questions that don't come through the contact form. So don't post on Reddit. Don't post on Facebook. Go to our website, fill out that contact form, and we will answer your questions in episode 11. Our next one is episode 10, so it's two away. So you have an entire month to think about your questions. If you have any feedback on this episode, I just want to put out a disclaimer. Yeah, we wanted to try out two different topics, two very different topics that appeal to probably different people. So just let us know what you think. The sort of macro leveling up general topic and then a very specific trendy new deck with new cards 
Uh, and I'd like to point out, I'd like to apologize. Anurag was really jumpy and excitable at the beginning of the episode, but maybe crashed a little bit. Um, adult beverages will do that to you, but we love him. We appreciate Anurag being here. We appreciate all of our listeners. Thank you, Bryant, for holding down the fort today. It's been good. Hey, Bryant, I appreciate you. I'm not allowed to say it back to you because you said you would quit. <laughs> oh, damn. Dirty laundry. Stinky underwear. By the way, for everybody who wants to know, we all had big argument this past week, but we got over it. We love each other. I would like to think of it as uh, sort of like Fleetwood Mac. You know, they had a lot of issues, sort of fell in and out of love with each other, fell in love with each other's lovers, all those different things, and produced the magnificent piece of art, the Rumors album, one of the greatest albums of all time. So I'm hoping that... That any of the the conflict that we have, inter inter lover uh, squab- squabbles, whatever, I hope that it can lead to some awesome content for our listeners. So thank you all for listening. Yeah, we're sorry for the delay in the episode release. I made an offhand comment about the type of wax that Wilson uses, and uh, we did not record Sunday night because of it. Get it? Because he's bald. Chickapa, chickapa, pa pa. Miserable. I am fucking miserable, Anurag. Do you know why? Because I'm a freaking visionary, Anurag. That's why. Because I need creative energy to produce this stuff.